Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. Many of you know that I'm an enthusiastic cyclist. I love bicycling. Uh, and I understand that's kind of a niche sport for us. Some of you may be paying more attention to the NBA playoffs. Uh, but right now, guys, if you miss this, the Giro d'Italia, it's on. It's the premier three-week-long bicycling stage race. Started in Israel this year. First time it started outside of Europe. They are in Italy. Today they're going to finish on top of a mountain somewhere. And bicycle racing is one of the most complex sporting events the world has ever come up with. Because over the course of a three-week-long stage race, there's a race every day. There's all these uh, complex teamwork factors and strategy that play in. And there's lots of races going on within the race over the course of 20 days. And and so kind of in honor of that, and because I enjoy it, uh, I challenged Corey to to a bit of a race um, for the the 2018 Mercy Hill Staff Cycling Smackdown, uh, whatever we we call it here. And it's time to trade the bifocals for the Oakleys because safety first, bro. There you go. And uh, and a little shout out to Geek Commuter Chic here. Right? Get the cuffs. Do you want a pair? <laughs> well, they're definitely not fashionable. That's for sure. Um, I, I could use a lovely and talented assistant and referee. Um, do we have, we have babies in the house? So much for the air horn. All right. I'm not completely insensitive. I may miss Mother's Day. And uh, so we're going to start out down here. See you at the end. Um, Hey, I understand there may be some crowd sympathy for my competitor here, but I just like to request nobody sticks like a bike pump through my wheel or anything coming down the the aisle. Thank you. Um, On your marks, get set. Okay. Well, that was fast, Corey, but Corey, did you read the rules? Oh, it looks like Corey didn't read the rules. <laughs> because there, there is a, there's a different kind of cycling, bicycling race, and it's not the typical go as fast as you possibly can kind of race. No, instead, and this is common in India, it's called a slow bicycle race. And in a slow bicycle race, the winner is the one who goes the shortest distance in the time without putting their foot down. And it's a different skill to ride your bike slowly instead of fast, isn't it? Now imagine living your whole life racing to the wrong rules. Hello? Because many of us, listen, for all of us, there's a gun that goes off when you're born. There's a whistle that blows when your life starts. And then we go racing through our lives. And we're doing our best to be a success. And then there's a gun that goes off. There's a whistle that blows. 
at the end of your life. And if you don't know what the point is, if you're racing your life to the wrong rules, what a tragedy that is. I want to take a look at what Jesus has to say in Mark chapter 9, verse 33, for which I will use the bifocals again. Johnny shared with us last Sunday that Jesus Christ was emphatic about making the point that whoever wants to be first in his kingdom needs to be the last. We just saw a bike race where the one who's last is the first. And yet we live our lives usually trying to get ahead of others. Like being first is what it's all about, but that's the opposite of what Jesus teaches us. Jesus insists that it's the last who are first. And when Jesus' disciples were all fixated on trying to be the greatest, even competing against each other to do it, Jesus wanted them to learn to become servants because Jesus didn't come to be served himself, but to give his life as a ransom for many. He is emphatic about this. And so I'm moving just one chapter earlier than where Johnny preached from last Sunday. Johnny brought a message from Mark chapter 10. We're in Mark chapter 9 now, where Jesus is saying the same thing to his disciples that he has to tell them again in chapter 10. Verse 33 tells us, when they came to Capernaum, and they were, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, come on, you know what's happening. They kept quiet because they knew that he knew and they were embarrassed to say that once again, they were doing what? They were arguing about who was the greatest. Who is the greatest? And verse 35 says, sitting down, Jesus called the 12. He like pulls these guys in for a special attention intervention. And he says this, quote, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. And he took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking the him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me, welcomes not me only, does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' kingdom operates by different standards. It has different goals and different rules for what greatness really is. It's a different kingdom with different rules and goals than the way our world system operates. And these rules require us to develop different skills. We can't live our life with the skills that we've been developing for so many years to get ourselves ahead and end up successful in Christ's kingdom. And once you realize that Jesus' kingdom operates by different goals and different rules, different definitions of what it means to be a success or a winner, we've got to, it means we've got to stop relying on the skills that we've worked hard at developing to get ourselves ahead in the world system. Or to say it differently, we've got to get good at skills that we worked hard to outgrow. I want to talk first about the different rules and then take a practical look at the different skills that we need to learn. There's an argument Jesus' disciples are having 
that seems like it never goes away. I don't just mean over and over in the Gospels. I mean 2,000 years later in our own lives. This question of who's the greatest seems to be a constant argument that many of us continually have inside ourselves, even where it doesn't boil out in our conversations with anyone else. We're asking ourselves questions like, am I really good enough? Do I have what it takes? Do I really matter? And there's an argument going on inside us. And sometimes it may not be based in a direct competition that you feel like you're having with somebody in another aisle, another lane, but it may be that you're working out this internal argument through constant comparisons with others. You may not feel like you're in competition, but you are comparing yourself against others. When the disciples were having this argument, and for them it was just out there, they're out on the road, arguing with each other, no, I'm better than you, I am greater, there's no way that you're the greater one. What kind of measuring stick do you suppose they were using in their efforts to, to argue that they themselves were the greatest? What kinds of things do you suppose they would point to? Well, it's probably stuff that has to do with, I can do this better than you. And I can do that better than you. I don't know if any of them said, well, I'm better looking or I'm better dressed or any of those things, but it would be a performance-oriented measuring stick. Does that make sense? Are we together? Right? Those are the same standards that we're using today to compare ourselves with others. They're saying, I'm better at doing fill in the blank. And we want to lean on the things we're better at when we compare to others who are better at us in other areas that we're not as good at. But when we see this, we see this kind of measuring stick. What it is, is it's a value system that Jesus is opposed to. Jesus rejects the economy of performance as a measuring stick for people's value and worth. In Christ's kingdom, our value does not come from our productivity or our results. Whether that's your examination scores, your athletic performance, how much money you make, what kind of house you live in, what kind of car you drive, we're not more valuable or better in Christ's kingdom because we're smarter or stronger or richer or better dressed than somebody else. So I'm appealing to you this morning. We have got to see Christ's kingdom with fresh eyes. We can't come and say, oh yes, Jesus is wonderful and this God that we're singing about and his wonderful great love is so wonderful and then go on evaluating ourselves and other people through a system and an economy and a measuring stick that Jesus himself rejects and opposes. Um, let, me, let me share with you a quote from, from this book. Uh, this, this is Mark, John Mark Comer's book. Uh, it, calls it Garden City, and the subtitle that you can't read is called Work, Rest, and the Art of Being Human. Um, it's not specifically a book plug, but you might find this actually a very readable book. He writes in a way that you feel like you're just sitting across a coffee table with a guy. Uh, it's, it's written unlike a lot of other books. It feels very conversational. I want to share this quote from it with you. He says this. He says, if your dreams are about you, then your dreams are way too small. You need to dream larger. Larger than your job or career or net worth or name or body. You need dreams as large as Jesus's vision of the kingdom. A kingdom where greatness has been radically redefined around a crucified Messiah. 
where children are the guests of honor, where servants lead and leaders serve, where the last are first. That's the kingdom. Greatness has been radically redefined by the cross. The great king, the one who's first in the kingdom, is the one who bled and died for us. And in this kingdom, the ones who have nothing to give are the ones who are honored at the table. And where leaders serve and embrace servanthood. Listen, I, I want, the author is going to continue. I'm going to keep reading without a break of where he goes on. I want you to see how this author connects these principles of the kingdom and what it means to radically redefine greatness around the cross to actually learning different skills and living differently in our day-to-day -day life. Here he goes. He continues. He says, whatever your calling is, whatever you end up doing with your life, please, please don't do it for yourself. That's such an overdone, cliche, uncreative way of living. Instead, do your work as an expression of love and service, ultimately to God and then to your neighbor. Maybe you'll make a ton of money, or maybe you'll have just enough. Maybe you'll become a household name all over the world, or maybe you won't. But none of that matters. That's not why you do it. You do it because God made you to do it, because it's good, because it has a bearing in this world and in the world to come. Because when all is said and done, it matters. And to live for the greatness of a crucified Messiah means you and I, we've got to learn some skills that we actively have repressed since kindergarten. Jesus tells his disciples two key things. He says, learn to be last. And he says, welcome the least. Here's, what, here's how he said it. In verse 35, he said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. I'm paraphrasing that by saying, learn to be last. Not many of us wake up in the morning saying, okay, what am I going to get done today? What am I going to do today? I know, I'm going to be the last. That's my goal of the day. It, but it takes an intentionality for us to learn to be last, to be the servant of others. And the second thing, which is like the other side of the same coin, he takes this little child, stands him among them, takes the child in his arm. He says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. We've got to learn to be last and to welcome the least. Is that making sense? Here's what's at stake. What's at stake is actually welcoming Jesus in our lives. What's at stake is whether our lives are actually welcoming and inviting him to be a part of it with us. Do you want God to be a functional part of your life? Jesus is saying, then live like this. Otherwise, we're just going through the motions and pretending. Because it's foolishness for us to talk, talk, talk a good talk about obeying Jesus and following Jesus if we don't live in the way that actually welcomes him into our lives. Because when we come right down to it, I mean, some of us, we do a good job of talking a good game. But in practice, we're doing a lousy job of living in a way that makes Jesus feel welcome as part of it. What's the point of wanting to love Jesus or serve Jesus or follow Jesus if the way you and I treat other people rejects his actual presence? This is Jesus' response to his disciples' trying to figure out where they fit, 
trying to figure out their own significance, trying to figure out their own greatness and worth. They're saying, Jesus, we're following you. Jesus, we've left everything to follow you and to be your disciples. And Jesus is answering like this. He's saying, okay, then let me help you see this point clearly. Here's a little child. Take a look. Let me lift him right up here and help you see. Because you know, this little child, mothers, you know, someone who's high maintenance, rather demanding, does a whole lot of taking in your relationship. Someone who's emotionally immature and doesn't have much to give you. Yeah. Welcoming people like that is what it takes to welcome me. And not only me, but my father in heaven. Because whoever welcomes me welcomes not just me, but the one who sent me. It's a profound challenge Jesus gives us today that whoever wants Jesus to feel welcome in our lives, we've got to learn some skills about how we treat other people. Because how we treat other people, particularly the people who don't seem to have anything to give us, that is, according to Jesus, the real measure of whether we're extending an actual welcome to God in our own lives. And too many times, Christians see this matter of servanthood and putting others first as some kind of add-on that's like semi-optional. Like if you want bonus points with God, we go ahead and we do a little extra servanthood sort of thing. But it's not that way. Jesus is insistent that it's integral to welcoming him, to welcoming our Heavenly Father to have a functional place in our lives. What's actually at stake is whether Jesus is being welcomed by our actions and attitudes. So I think it's one of the key reasons our politics are so messed up, right? Even so many of the Christians who are involved in politics are fighting so hard to be first. They're trying to win the race by going as fast and hard, as strong as we can, instead of serving in a way that welcomes Jesus. Guys, can I just talk to, to the guys? It's Mother's Day, am I allowed to talk to the guys? Yes, all the moms are like, please. Um, guys, if you want to be the spiritual leader in your home, guys, if you're going to be the spiritual leader in your home, it doesn't come to you because of your anatomy. right? What's between your legs doesn't make you the leader in the house. Welcoming Jesus is what spiritual leadership is really about. So guys, if we're going to be spiritual leaders in our home, it comes from the behaviors that we do treating the other members of our family, people beyond our family, in ways to welcome Jesus. Many times for us guys, we, have this, we want to be able to fix it. It's not a bad desire. It can, come, can flow genuinely out of the love and concern we have for the rest of our family. We see a problem. We just want to get in and we want to fix it. But what do we do when there's situations that we can't fix? We can't do it. We can get all tangled up and stuck or try to force it and do things that are unhealthy. Here's the thing. Guys, when we're facing situations in our family that need spiritual leadership, what it means is they need the Spirit. Hello? It needs the Lord. And the leadership our family needs is for us to behave in a way that welcomes the Lord into the situation. Sometimes that means letting go of all of the patterns and the modeling of what authority and leadership has meant to you from your family of origin, from this culture, from the way the world does it, and start to embrace what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus actually says is, if you want to be first, learn to be the servant. Because that kind of servanthood, do you know what it does? It opens the door and welcomes Jesus in. 
And he's the answer all of our family need. Amen? So let's talk about how we learn to do it. Learn to be last. Putting other people first. It doesn't come naturally to us to do. I'm not talking about being passive. I'm not talking about being just a lump that's not going anywhere. Servanthood is active, it is intentional, and it is hard work. But learning to be last requires us to learn some different skills. For me, it's meant I've had to learn to kill competitiveness. I've grown up just a very competitive guy. I had, a, I had and still have a brother who somehow he's still two years older than me, despite my best efforts to catch up to him my whole life. And, and through, when we were growing up, I was just always trying to catch up to him, always gunning for him, trying to do as well as he did, trying to do better than he did. And he was smart and he was bigger. He was, he was better in all these categories, but I was the competitive one that was going to chase him down. And do, and do you know what happened? It really damaged our relationship. I, I turned our, what could have been a good brother-sister, brother-brother relationship into a pretty dysfunctional competition. And it's taken us years as adults for, for us to rebuild that. We have a good relationship now, but it's come because I had to learn to kill my own competitiveness. And it took God's intervention with me. I assure you, God will help you. If you humbly come to him with this, say, Lord, I know I need to kill my competitiveness in my relationships. Help me instead to be a servant. It's going to include things like learning to respect and recognize other people's strengths and be willing to celebrate what other people are good at without feeling threatened by it yourself. And if you can hear just in your own heart that that's a challenge for you, you could be a man, you could be a woman here today, and when you see someone else thriving or succeeding, it hurts inside you, take it to the Lord. Ask him specifically to help you with that so that it can become instead a place of healing and strength for you instead of a place of pain and difficulty. Um, I've had to learn to be okay at not being the best. Growing up, that was my one goal, was just to be, well, maybe I didn't have to be the best, I just had to be better than you, <laughs> you know? And, and that characterized my relationships. To learn to be okay with not being the best has been so vital for me welcoming Jesus functionally in my life. Like now, I... I'm okay with not being the best musician in this church. There's no chance of me being the best musician in this church. But my response to that isn't to hang up ever doing anything musical in this church. Because you can do that sometimes. You can say, well, if I'm not going to be the best, then I better not do it at all. No, instead, I have to be willing to contribute what I can bring as a servant, even though I know that there's people here who can do it better than me. And it's a spiritual discipline for us to neither dominate or insist on being the best, nor check out and withdraw or quit when we're not the best, but to take whatever God's given us and to say, I'm going to contribute what I have to my family, to my coworkers, to people that I'm just meeting for the first time in a way that builds them up so that I live as a servant because I want to welcome Jesus and I want to display him to the people around me. And it's fine, it's good to want to get better. Wanting to get better as a musician, wanting to get better as someone who can share the Bible, wanting to get better as a parent, wanting to get better as a husband or as a wife, it's perfect, that's wonderful. It's a different thing to want to get better 
than to need to be the best. Do you see the difference? One is stewarding and growing in what God's given us and wanting to serve others better. The other is needing to be on top and striving in this economy that Jesus condemns. So a couple practical ways just this week that I've been practicing being willing to be last um, include how I drive. You might have noticed that there's this bridge under construction on Route 41 in Highland, um, which happens to be my most direct route between this building and my house. And, and so um, I made the mistake of taking that route the other day because it was just Friday. And that whole left lane, I don't know why that's the lane they close, but that's the lane that's going by much faster somehow than me sitting patiently in the right-hand lane. And I found myself needing to practice my willingness to be last by letting other people go in front of me. I know that sounds so simple, except in here it's not always so simple, is it? I want to urge you this week, put it into practice. It's a simple thing. Let somebody else go ahead. I was at the grocery store this week. I only had like three items. I didn't even have a basket. But the Lord's working on me about learning to be last and letting other people go ahead. One very practical place to practice is a checkout line. Why don't you go ahead? No, you can go ahead of me. Oh, don't worry. No, really, please. My pleasure. Because when we kill our competitiveness, when we kill our desire, our need to be first, it's an invitation to Jesus to be that much more real in our lives. Is that making sense? Let's talk a minute about welcoming the Lord by welcoming others. You know, Jesus is talking when he takes this little child and he brings him in front of everybody. He's talking about serving people that seem to have nothing to give us, who just take from us. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> I, uh, my wife enjoys how Jesus says uh, that we're supposed to be like our Father in heaven, who is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. It's like, that is a mothering verse right there. And, and it's true, you know, because when we have small children or teenagers, right, there's something about this message that gets to the core of who we are because, boy, they don't get, children don't give a lot in return. Okay, you may have to clean up your own kitchen after they try to make your breakfast this morning. You know, you may get a nice handwritten card, but one day a year, doesn't really cut it for all that you do. No, but here's something that Charles Stanley had to say about motherhood. He said this. He said, motherhood is a great honor and privilege, yet it is also synonymous with servanthood. Every day, women are called upon to selflessly meet the needs of their families, whether they are awake at night nursing a baby, spending their time and money on less than grateful teenagers, or preparing meals. Moms continuously put others before themselves. And so when I talk about this reality of how do I learn, how do I practice welcoming others who take more than they give in this relationship? I am not urging you to go have more children. This church already has that pretty well worked out. No, but it is a principle that we can practice in all of our relationships. And I want to challenge you to take a look at your relationships in general. Marriage, friendships, coworkers, neighbors, Am I positioned as a servant in these relationships? Which means, am I focused on giving rather than getting? Be focused on giving, not getting, in your interactions with people. 
That goes as far as how we treat the waiter or the waitress at a restaurant, someone who's supposed to be serving us at a store uh, in retail. And I want to point this out to us here. When Jesus uses this pattern, he uses the child as an example. It is a painful reminder to me that welcoming Jesus happens at inconvenient moments. How often do little children wait until it's your ideal moment as a parent to come and ask for your attention and your help? No, their needs and their timing usually are in conflict with our preferences and what else we're trying to do. Listen, brothers and sisters, guys, it's about us welcoming Jesus at inconvenient moments where we find a way to welcome Jesus in the needs of others. Yeah, Jesus, We welcome Jesus who's embodied in the needs of others at the times that are inconvenient for us. I find, these guys can tell you, I frequently try to push my kids away when they come with their needs or desire for my attention when I'm wanting to do something else. If I feel like it's getting in the way of my project, my own productivity, I push away. The fact is when I do that, I'm telling Jesus to take a step back as well. Jesus says, he who welcomes me does not welcome me only, but the one who sent me. Can you imagine Jesus coming to your own door and you telling him that you don't have time for him right now? Can you imagine your heavenly father coming along with Jesus and offering to have a meal with you? And you say, you know what? We're kind of busy right now, uh, maybe another week. But that's functionally what we actually end up doing. It's humbling. Of course, Jesus' disciples were the same way. They're walking with him all the time, everywhere they go. And what are they doing on the road when they're walking along with Jesus? They're arguing with each other about who's the greatest, and they're each trying to push their own agenda. And so Jesus tirelessly keeps reminding them that the principle of his kingdom doesn't change just because we're slow to learn. And this morning, he's coming again to challenge us, to say, practice, practice, practice. You know it. There's a reason that we're, we're talking about this back-to-back for a couple weeks, because it's so vital that as a church, we don't just hear and say, Johnny, that was a great message last week. It really is. And then we go back to living by the economy and measuring stick of this world instead of actually learning to change and building the habits in our lives that welcome Jesus and live in a way that displays him. Genuine change does not come from good intentions, but from developing good habits. When Jesus' disciples heard him, each time he said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the last, I'm sure Jesus' disciples were saying, yep, Jesus, yeah, I know you're right, Jesus, you're right, you're right, that's right. And then they'd go back, and they'd be in another argument on their way to the next village about the same things. Practice being the last. Practice welcoming the least. Invite Jesus to transform your attitudes and your heart. I am. I invite you to do the same. One of the things we do virtually every Sunday here is intended to help us with that. It's the practice of sharing communion together. Because when we've practiced well, communion keeps us from thinking of ourselves as the greatest. When we share communion, we are proclaiming the sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus Christ himself. We are rejecting, we're denying any self-reliance that we have in our own lives. And we're acknowledging that this table of the Lord is the great equalizer. 
It shows that you and I, all of us, have equal value before the Lord, not because of our accomplishments, but because of his wonderful love and sacrifice. So I'm going to lead us in prayer a bit, and then Todd is going to lead us in communion as the worship team comes forward. Lord Jesus, we admit that, God, I know, I haven't really said anything this morning that's like brand new to people who are here, but Father, we need your help. Jesus, we repent of hearing repeatedly the message of servanthood, but still striving and living in a way that hasn't prioritized the very practical things you've said. So Lord, we're asking for your help. Lord, we're asking you to help us today. Lord, to live as people of the cross, to live as followers of a crucified king. Lord, that your own death, your own sacrificial offering of yourself, that you came not to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. God, it wouldn't be just the example we're trying to follow, but it'd be your life in us. Jesus, we need you. Jesus, we depend on you that in being crucified with you, we no longer live our own life. It's not just ourselves living for ourselves, but that, Lord, it's your life living in our bodies to your glory. And we look to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.